With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking.、Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and、uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lone Wolf Radio calling. Lone Wolf Radio calling. This is Lone Wolf Radio calling, and this is Terrible Tommy in the bunker right here in Southern California. And guess what? Unbelievable! Something's happening outside. There's water falling down from the sky. They tell me it's called rain. Something we don't get much of out here. So we get pretty good rain this morning. Unfortunately, that's going to cause mudslides around in where the fire zones have been. So they first have to run away from the fire. Now they got to run away from the mud. Well, it's flat as a pancake where I'm living, so I don't worry about the mud. There's no mountain around here. Mountains all around, but they're several miles off. So I think we're safe here. Got a bulletin here for you from、uh, Daniel Mahon. The brother of Dennis Mahon, who's in Terre Haute Prison in Indiana. Hey Tom, haven't heard anything from Denny in ten days until today. A 67-year-old white inmate, just four cells away from Danny's cell, was found at a count dead from strangulation by a reading light power cord. There are only 38 inmates in that. Pod, so the perp must have come from the, come from the pod. This dead inmate's family was ready to receive a two million dollar settlement from a lawsuit against the Bureau of Prisons. Denny was interviewed by the investigators and was dropped as a suspect, as Denny was a good friends with the deceased. I believe this crime was done by an outsider brought in late at night to dispatch the inmate. The unit manager called yesterday to let me know my visit with Denny on Monday will be go on as scheduled. The pod, the pod has will be on lockdown until the investigators are finished. All prisons are dangerous places, for sure. Have a nice holiday season, Daniel Mahon. Well, that's a little bit too close for comfort. Just a few cells away. Yeah. Well, they were about to win a two million dollar lawsuit. The family of this man. I would venture to say you could tie it back to prison officials themselves that. Let it be done, or had it be done. Let's see what the Jews are doing in Israel on、uh, ability to hack into your new car and run you into a wall. Cyber attack on almost any modern car. 
just like any connected computer, everything that you connect to the internet is vulnerable at the end. So this is true the same way to cars. Ziv is using a wireless adapter that enables internet access to hack into the car's Wi-Fi, which is now standard on new vehicles. What's weird about this little experiment we're doing is that I've got no idea what it is that he's going to be trying this. So we're going to start small, playing a bit with our windows. So he's putting the windows up and down. Let's play a bit with her blinkers. So the left indicator is coming on, the right indicator is coming on. So now he's messing with the miles an hour thing. It's going all the way up to 220 kilometers an hour. The rev on this is going all over the place. This would freak you out if you didn't know it was being done on purpose. Now he's now it's completely disabled, engine malfunction. The fact that he can do all of this means that he could very easily just ram us straight into that wall in front of us. That experience in the experiment that we just did then is probably the first time where I've thought hacking could physically cause harm to me. How many cars in the world do you think you could do the same thing to right now? Today, I would say that most of them are vulnerable or susceptible to hackers' attacks. Though there aren't any cars made in Israel, the world's top auto security companies are Israeli. And they're all part of a wave of cyber innovation that's sweeping across the country. Israel's become a world leader in cyber technology, and all of the Israeli companies who are at the forefront of that revolution are inside this building. people here from all over the world and what many of them have come here to hear is Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, laying out why this country is a global leader in the field. Two years ago I set the goal for Israel of becoming one of the top five cyber security powers in the world. It's a goal we have met. Today Israel receives roughly one-fifth of the world's global private investment in cybersecurity. You're in a wonderful business. It's endless. In fact, Israel receives more venture capital funds per person than any other country in the world. It has become known as the startup nation. To understand how Israel became a global leader in this field, we spoke with Israeli journalist and senior defense correspondent, Alon Ben-David. There's a very small community that is practically an island. You are completely surrounded with nations that you cannot cross to. Israel developed creativity uh, to compensate for its lack of resources, and it is a country that needs to conduct constant surveillance on the neighbors, as a country which is under constant annihilation threat by other nations. Israel understood many years ago that going into wars and launching massive military operations, it bears almost unbearable prices first in human lives, in, in terms of economic costs, in terms of international legitimacy. So cyber was the right answer for many things that Israel needed to do. Do you think Israel's private cyber security industry is essentially the child of the Israeli military's affairs? Oh, absolutely. The whole of the Israeli cyber industry relies on knowledge gathered by, by people serving in Israel's different security agencies and the military. Military service is mandatory for most Israeli citizens, and one of the largest parts of the Israeli Defense Force is its cyber and intelligence units. 
These entire units and some 20,000 cyber soldiers are now being relocated to Beersheba, a desert city which is quickly becoming Israel's Silicon Valley. This military industrial cyber complex is said to be the largest infrastructure project in Israel's history. We spoke with the CEO behind this $5 billion undertaking, Ronnie Zahavi. What's the significance of the military being a part of all of this? Because going to the service is compulsory. You can look at the Israeli army as the largest HR organization in the world. Because practically speaking, they start scanning the layers of the Israeli population and position the right people in the right places, especially in elite units. So if you think about it, you take somebody who is 18 years of age and you get them exposed to the state of the art technology, to the highly advanced paradigms and methodologies, so when they go out of the service at the age of 23, 24, from an IBM point of view, or from EMC point of view, or from Intel point of view, somebody has already, con already conducted the screening and already selected the best they can get in that sense. But the initial screening and recruitment process for the IDF's most elite cyber units actually begins much earlier. In 2013, the Ministry of Defense helped create a national program for high school students interested in learning more about the realm of cyber. These after-school classes have become unofficial feeder programs for the IDF cyber units. We met with a recruiter for one of those units, C4I. We could not reveal her identity because of her security clearance. <laughs> ילדים שהאופי שלהם מספיק חזק בשביל להתמודד עם אתגרים טכנולוגיים במימד הסייבר וככה אנחנו מניחים את ידינו הטובים ביותר ומביאים אותם למיון. Partially because this elite cyber and intelligence division doesn't just provide defense. In fact, they're responsible for one of the most aggressive cyber attacks in history. Stuxnet, a cyber attack that sabotaged the Iranian nuclear program by destroying centrifuges at the Natanz nuclear facility, is widely believed to be a joint operation of Unit 8200 and the NSA. And in 2014, 43 former members of 8200 wrote an open letter to the Prime Minister refusing to serve because of the unit's widespread use of surveillance. We met with one of the soldiers who signed the letter. Israeli intelligence is everywhere, literally everywhere in the Palestinian territories. It doesn't matter whether they're suspects of something or not, whether they're political activists or whatever, no one's off limits. What's wrong with that? If you're at war with another people and you've got complete surveillance, that sounds like quite a, an advantage. The problem is when it goes beyond plain security. If someone's about to do an attack in Tel Aviv, then I could see why we'd want to know where he is or where he's going. But if you've got his brother, his sister, his cousins, his cousin's friends, all of them tapped as well, then that's where it clearly crosses the line. If you find out that someone might be having an affair, someone is gay, when you come across that information, instead of it being put away as irrelevant, it's something that you would send forward and it would be used. If someone's cheating on their wife and the United 200 have discovered this, what's the benefit of having that information? Israel can approach them 
and get them to cooperate one way or another, be it get some information, go photograph some places, and what they get out of it is their secret is not been revealed. Blackmail. Yeah, you can call it blackmail. Despite its shadowy reputation, one thing is clear. The skills and methods these soldiers learn in H200 are extremely profitable on the free market. These veterans have gone on to create tech startups worth billions of dollars, and the most prestigious tech companies actively recruit former H200 members. Sharon Nimorovsky served in one of the IDF's technological units before founding a company called White Hat Limited. Companies hire his team to attack their systems, to assess and then fix any weaknesses. So at the moment around this table, your colleagues here are actually attacking They're a company. actually attacking company. These days, it only takes an email to control you. I can send you a PDF file and when he opens it, he gets a hostile file installed on his computer. After he gets it, everything he strokes on his keyboard is being transferred to the internet. Every password, every credit card number, every email you send. Now what do you do with that data after you collect it? You sell it. You sell it on the darknet. Everything you just want to know you can buy here. Business profiles, social security numbers of the employees, date of birth, Bronx Hospital in New York. They stole 34,000 patient records. Healthcare will be the most profitable information today. What's this? That's an email from Senator McCain. John McCain's emails uh, floating around the government. While the origin of Senator McCain's emails remains uncertain, the power of hacked emails and data breaches became abundantly clear during the 2016 election. President Obama blaming Russia for interfering in the U.S. elections. Beyond the risks of data breaches and hacker markets, potential threats to critical infrastructure, including physical facilities, are also becoming indisputable. We met up with Barrett Perelman, an H200 vet and founder of Indigy, a startup that builds cybersecurity networks for industrial facilities that could be vulnerable to hacks. What happened in the last decade or so was the interconnectivity between the systems. I want access anytime, anywhere, to any place. Quite convenient, in theory. Convenient for the operators and making it more convenient for the hackers. The type of control systems that essentially manage the pumps and the valves in all of this facility were designed 20 years ago, 30 years ago. They are very easily penetrable, very easy to disable them, very easy to manipulate them. Could you do that? Um, so, the short answer is yes. Barrett hacked into the reservoir systems to show us how dangerous a simple piece of malware can be. First, he shut down the valves which drain the sewage. Simultaneously, he manipulated the system's display to indicate that everything was operating normally. There's not a big red sign saying, alert, you've been hacked. Exactly. The eventual result of this would be the reservoirs filling up and having a toxic overflow. This is theoretical. Can you give me an example of where this happened in the real world? So, I want to refute the fact that it's theoretical because as recent as a few months ago in the Ukraine power grid that was being shut down, industrial control systems got hacked. A few years ago we had reporting by the German government that a furnace was being blown up in a steel mill due to a cyber attack. 
It's the same industrial control system. If I hacked one of them, I can hack presumably all the others as well. This is, without exaggeration, the life-threatening attack. If I hack into a pharmaceutical plant and I change the composure of the drug, if I hack into an oil rig and cause an oil spill, if I create too much pressure in oil pipelines, all of these is no longer data and privacy issues. It starts to be safety and life-threatening situations. I have zero doubt in my mind that currently critical infrastructures in the Western world already have malware inside just ready for someone to press that red button and shut off a power grid. The weapons are loaded, essentially. I think so. That's exactly the definition of yours. While cybersecurity companies become more and more in demand, the crippling potential of cyber warfare only continues to grow. What we're talking about here is a total revolution of the whole concept of war. It changes everything we thought about war and how it's being conducted and what are the rules and who is the enemy and can you recognize the enemy at all. Many countries have very dangerous uh, cyber tools. Some are using it viciously, like the Russians, like the Chinese, and are not shy of using them against other countries. We all understand the vulnerabilities of critical infrastructure, and we all understand the vulnerabilities of privacy. But what troubles me is the ability to affect the mindset of masses, the mindset of a public. The Russians were manipulating American public mindset. That's scary. And that, I suspect, would eventually undermine most of Western democracies in the coming decade. I fear that the good 70 years post-World War II of prospering democracies in the Western world and prosperity, economic prosperity, are over. title of that program was Check Out How Israel Rules the World of Cybersecurity. <laughs> you think you thought you had other problems with the Jews? You, you haven't seen anything yet. With gene hijacking, they can bring talent in from all over the world under the Israeli situation. Gene hijacking. That's the Jews' favorite game. Gene hijacking. What's up with Trump at the border? Yeah, I'd like to know. It's easy to feel good about security enhancement at the southern border to keep people from Mexico and points south from getting into the country. People who may be criminals, people who may take jobs from Americans. But then along comes General Motors announcing a restructuring which will close down four plants in the U.S., and affect more than 10,000 jobs in America. They plan to move those jobs to Mexico, even China. So the jobs are lost to Americans anyway because of the machinations of multinational corporations, your enemy. President Trump is not happy and is talking about cutting subsidies to GM. I don't think he wants to offend the ruling class too much, but we are faced again with the stark reality of big business being more powerful than a sovereign government and the superpower status of big business and the big banks. President Trump is upset, but he could have sent a stronger message earlier 
by backing conservative outsider candidates for public office instead of U.S. Chamber of Commerce cheap labor express ones, ranging from never-Trumper Mitt Romney in Utah to the appointed U.S. Senator in Mississippi, Cindy Hyde-Smith. Hyde-Smith won last night by only 54 to 46 percent, running five points below the incumbent GOP Senator Roger Weicker's 59 percent total in the general election three weeks ago. GM's using the excuse of tooling up for electric cars and like that, uh, the whole new wave of cars. But if electric cars are in such high demand, then why are they discontinuing the Volt? Obama claimed the Volt was the ultimate in driving pleasure. Insofar as the tear gas thing goes, why didn't we hear any of this dribble over the past year when police were battling other people? with cannons, rubber bullets, bean bags, pepper spray, and so on. Yeah, how come? Every day for the libs and the media is Groundhog Day, the same old, same old, approach like they've never heard of it or thought of it before. But you know the insanity definition, i.e. doing the same thing over and over again and expect it to come out differently. Nobody cares if they use tear gas on domestic riots in Europe, but it's a no-no against hordes of new Democrat voters invading us from the South. Adults running towards the line of fire with children in tow does not reflect in any way on Donald Trump, ICE, or the Border Patrol, and the military, or even or any enforcement. It reflects on the stupidity of the cowardly adults dragging the kids into the fray. It's tantamount to liberals planting racist notes and symbols just to blame it on the conservatives. I personally find it hard to see all these crocodile tears for the kids from people who fund Planned Parenthood and promote killing of thousands of human babies a year. Would these same adults make their kids stand in traffic hoping a car would hit them in order to sue the driver? Yep. And that was a letter to the editor. Los Angeles, CNS, a suspected member of a Southern California white nationalist group that incited brawls at political rallies last year was denied bail for a second time today after a judge found that the Ansar resident is a danger to the community. Aaron Eason, 38, was among four men indicted in Los Angeles for allegedly inciting violence against counter-protesters, journalists, and others at rallies throughout the state, including 2017 events in Huntington Beach, Berkeley and San Bernardino. Eason's lawyer, John McNicholas, denied that his client has ties to the so-called Rise Above movement. The attorney told the court that although the Riverside County resident was captured on video fighting at the Berkeley rally, he had actually attended the April 2017 event to provide security for supporters of President Donald Trump and fought to protect himself from an unprovoked attack by a member of the Antifa movement. The government's contention that Eason should remain in custody pending trial because he is a member of a violent, 
racist organization is merely a huge attempt to inflame the court, McNicholas said. Assistant U.S. Attorney David Ryan countered that emails sent by Eason show he was closely associated with REM and that he participated in hand-to-hand -hand combat training with the group at a park in San Clemente in preparation for the rallies. U.S. Magistrate Judge Rosella Oliver denied Eason bail earlier this month on grounds that he was a danger to the community and affirmed that ruling Tuesday, despite hearing from a friend of Eason's who testified that she knew the defendant as nonviolent, responsible, and hard-working. McNicholas indicated he would file motions to dismiss and to separate Eason's case from that of his co-defendants. One of the four Southern California defendants, Tyler Logg, 22, of Redondo Beach pleaded guilty last week to conspiring to violate the Federal Riots Act. In a plea agreement, Logg admitted to being associated with RAM, attending the combat training event and assaulting counter-protesters and others at a Make America Great Again rally in Huntington Beach in March 2017. Eason, Logg, and co-defendants Robert Rondo, 28, of Huntington Beach, and Robert Bowman, 25, of Torrance, were indicted on one count each of conspiracy to violate the Federal Riots Act. Additionally, Rondo, Bowman and Eason were charged with violating the riot statute. Each of the two counts carry sentences of up to five years in federal prison, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Last month, federal authorities arrested four other suspected RAM members, including alleged RAM founder Ben Daly, 25, of Redondo Beach. He and three other men were charged for their suspected roles in last year's deadly far-right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Daly, Thomas Walter Gillen, 24, also of Redondo Beach, Michael Paul Mislis, 29, of Lawndale, and Cole Evan White, 24, of Clayton, California, are awaiting trial in Virginia. Did you ever hear of the Federal Riots Act? I never heard of it. I think that's something relatively new. They had other words for something like that back in the 20s and 30s of the last century with the labor movement like syndicalism and so forth. But this is a new one for me. So it virtually means that anytime you go on the street and somebody attacks you and you resist, they're going to single you out because of your political beliefs. I mean, it's as simple as that. Antifa is just the being used to agitate the situation and make sure there's violence so they can charge you with violence and not Antifa. I haven't heard of any Antifa person being tried or jailed or tried for anything. Very interesting. You better get the word out to these right-wing boys. you got to go lone wolf. Dive to periscope depth. Your time will come, but it's not quite yet. And your tactics have got to be totally changed. I'll tell you how that works.
I was in a in a trial for being where a, a, a clan cross was burnt or set up on fire up in uh, Keogh Canyon in California. And we fought that case for nine years. But during that trial, it came out that uh, they had a picture of me in Arizona firing an AK-47 with a few guys, which I did. <laughs> we we were bored and we went out to the desert. I, I never fired an AK-47 before, so I, I did. And they got a picture of me, and they used that to say how violent I was and there was no absolutely no violence at all to it so that's don't take so many pictures too the right wing does that all the time they've got to have their picture taken usually with guns or knives or something don't do it now these guys their their lives are pretty much ruined at least for the time being and some of them are going to go to federal prison for nothing gaining nothing but the a lot of right wingers will use people like this for their own ends and uh, Antifa and the this people will use them too they're using them they just have to bait them into the they're going into the street to demonstrate well let's go down and bait them get them into a fight and they'll haul all of their people off and we'll just disappear into the woodwork very easy to understand method. These things should not be announced. If somebody's going to have a get-together, there's no use announcing it. Well, I know you want people to come and hear you, but they don't give a shit. They come out of curiosity or to throw rocks at you. Give up that kind of stuff altogether. But if you can manipulate Antifa into attacking other groups that they obviously will fight with, if there's no right-wingers around, that's a good thing. You can easily do that, and then sit back and smile and laugh. Get the word out on Antifa leaders that they're secretly Nazi fascist spies, things like that. You know the case where that car hit that girl at, uh, at the rally down south? I've got a picture that somebody sent me of a the car going down the hill but it being attacked by Infada in, Infata or whatever fuck the creeps the guys attacking the back of the car now that could have caused the man driving to hit the gas so the attorneys ought to go through all this stuff there could be a good case made there all you need is a reasonable doubt and one juror I've got some proof here that the Pentagon and uh, the Jews are a actively in control in the Ukraine and right-wing guys are falling into the trap of supporting the Ukrainian government, which is nothing but a uh, carpetbag government. A celebrated Stanford scholar and an ex-envoy to Russia is having trouble finding evidence that the Ukrainian government sympathizes with paramilitary groups that espouse neo-Nazi ideologies. Most of these people are Hollywood Nazis. Michael McFall expressed his doubts about Kiev's support for ultra-nationalist and neo-Nazi elements in the Ukraine. 
He was responding to journalist Glenn Greenwald's assertion that the Ukrainian government, quote, has clear, systematic, and deeply ominous ties to actual Nazi groups and neo-Nazi factions, which is, in our, quote, in our societies, the U.S., Ukraine, and Russia, and many more countries, tragically have Nazi sympathizers. But the Ukrainian government, really, any evidence to support that hypothesis? Well, the prime minister is Jewish. <laughs> so they got neo-Nazis over there fighting under the leadership of the Jews. Greenwald promptly furnished two pieces of corroborating evidence which can hardly be dismissed as Russian propaganda. The usual tactics for the willingly blind about Ukraine's right-wing extremist problems. The first dating from March 2014 is a Washington Post op-ed penned by Eugene Robison, which decries how several top ministers, ministries and government posts were being headed by individuals with ties to the far-right and neo-Nazi groups. <coughs> now remember, all this crap is being poised against the Russians. And the Pentagon and all the boys, State Department, are trying to cause problems on the Russian border. And this is one of the ways they're causing problems, including NATO, trying to goad the Russians into something. One notable example cited in the WAPO piece, Andre Perubia, the founder of the creatively named and not Nazi-sounding at all, Socialist National Party of the Ukraine. The organization was an openly neo-fascist precursor in Svoboda, a current ultra-nationalist political party in Ukraine. What I'm telling you is, these people should be at least on the side of the Russians, not the Ukrainians, not the Ukrainian Jew president of Ukraine and also being run by right out of New York, the Ukrainian government. In 2014, Parabi was head of the National Security Council and is currently Speaker of the Parliament i.e. a leading figure in Ukraine's government is McFall, suggesting that Parabi, whose open neo-fascist organization once warned that we are the last hope of the white race. Well, that sounds good, but it's not working out that way. It's not sympathetic to the Nazis anymore, he said. Greenwald also cited a recent report by the Associated Press, which notes that the Ukrainian Ministry of Youth and Sports has spent about $150,000 on youth camps run by ultra-nationalists teaching kids how separatists are not human and thus are okay to shoot at. Well, what they should be doing is bringing down the Ukrainian government and installing a white racial government and making peace with the Russians. And this example is hardly isolated. Ukrainian budget money routinely 
goes to patriotic projects of a group like C14. C14, that started in Britain. Tubby was part of that. Tubby's not around anymore. They're in, they are a notorious, notorious ultra-nationalist organization whose members have openly expressed neo-Nazi views, <laughs> whatever that is. So here's a bunch of good guys, probably, They're marching to the wrong tune. They can be very pro-racial, and, and they can be very anti-Jewish and so forth, but they've been turned into anti-Russian and actually working for the Jews. Because if you're working for the Ukrainian government, you're working for the Jews in New York. Absolutely. Pass it on. I hate to see good white men die for a cause that's not even their cause. That's why you need to stay and fight in your own countries where you know somewhat what's going on. You go into these foreign countries to fight. You don't know what's going on. You don't know who's controlling it. And usually you end up working for the wrong people, the very people you don't want. And this problem is not limited to the Ukraine. The right-wing extremists there eagerly share their experiences with foreign sympathizers from Europe and from the U.S. too. The FBI accused Ukraine's Azov Battalion of radicalizing and training U.S.-based white supremacy groups. So now we got that problem to deal with. You can always tell what's what by who gets the most press. They give them a lot of negative press, but you, you know as well as I do that that negative press draws a lot of good people out. And they join up with groups that are not in their best interest. Well, I'm going to put this article in audio so that you can uh, think it over, look it over, because it's very important. Because if they're sending guys over there, or guys are going over there, going to get their ass blown off or think they're helping the white race by attacking Russia. That's bullshit. And that's right out of the NATO. NATO's trying to foment more warfare over there on the Russian border. So I'm going to play this in professional audio so you can get it. If you're in contact with any of these kind of people or you want to print it out or record it, handed out at these right-wing confabs because they need it. They're being misled, as usual. A celebrated Stanford scholar and ex-envoy to Russia is having trouble finding evidence that the Ukrainian government sympathizes with paramilitary groups that espouse neo-Nazi ideologies. Michael McFall expressed his doubts about Kiev's support for ultranationalist and neo-Nazi elements in Ukraine. He was responding to journalist Glenn Greenwald's assertion that the Ukrainian government has clear, systemic and deeply ominous ties. Russia is having trouble finding evidence that the Ukrainian government sympathizes with paramilitary groups that espouse neo-Nazi ideologies. 
Michael McFall expressed his doubts about Kiev's support for ultranationalist and neo-Nazi elements in Ukraine. He was responding to journalist Glenn Greenwald's assertion that the Ukrainian government has clear, systemic and deeply ominous ties to actual Nazi groups and neo-Nazi factions. In our societies, the U.S., Ukraine, Russia, and many more countries tragically have Nazi sympathizers. But the Ukrainian government? Really? Any evidence to support that hypothesis? The Prime Minister is Jewish. HTTPS colon slash slash t dot co slash u2bx72ubwp Michael McFall, at McFall, November 27, 2018 Most countries have Nazi sympathizers, McFall artfully retorted. But the Ukrainian government? Really? Any evidence to support that hypothesis? The Prime Minister is Jewish. Greenwald promptly furnished two pieces of corroborating evidence, which can hardly be dismissed as Russian propaganda, the usual tactics for the willingly blind about Ukraine's right-wing extremism problem. The first, dating from March 2014, is a Washington Post op-ed penned by Eugene Robinson, which decries how several top ministries and government posts were being headed by individuals with ties to far-right and neo-Nazi groups. One notable example cited in the WAPO piece, Andra Peruvi, the founder of the creatively named and not Nazi-sounding at all Social National Party of Ukraine. The organization was an openly neo-fascist precursor to Svoboda, a current ultra-nationalist political party in Ukraine. In 2014 Peruvi was head of the National Security Council and is currently Speaker of the Parliament, i.e., a leading figure in Ukraine's government. Is McFall suggesting that Peruvi, whose openly neo-fascist organization once warned that we are the last hope of the white race, is not sympathetic to Nazis anymore? Greenwald also cited a recent report by the Associated Press, which notes that the Ukrainian Ministry of Youth and Sports has spent about $150,000 on youth camps run by ultranationalists teaching kids how separatists are not human and thus are okay to shoot at. And this example is hardly isolated. Ukrainian budget money routinely goes to patriotic projects of group like C-14, or Sich. They are a notorious ultra-nationalist organization whose members have openly expressed neo-Nazi views, according to RFE-RL. And they act on their convictions with impunity. C-14 openly claimed credit for a series of attacks on Roma people in Ukraine, framing it as cleaning. The sometimes violent crackdowns faced no opposition from the police and courts don't seem too eager to have the individuals organizing those pogroms prosecuted. If a State Department-funded news outlet can come to the conclusion that C-14 has government's backing, 
surely its former employee could too. At least the NATO-funded Atlantic Council think tank connected the dots in June, hilariously starting its piece by giving RT credit for spending years reporting on Ukraine's growing neo-Nazi problem. And this problem is not limited to Ukraine. The right-wing extremists there eagerly share their experience with foreign sympathizers from Europe and from the U.S. too. The FBI accused Ukraine's Azov battalion of radicalizing and training us-based white supremacy groups. Azov Supported and organized by Interior Minister Avakov I'm sorry, Michael, where have you been during last five years, on an island? Michael McFaul does the Ukrainian Prime Minister the head of the Ukrainian government support this group? send me evidence. In court filings, the FBI said that Azov Battalion is a paramilitary unit of the Ukrainian National Guard which is known for its association with neo-Nazi ideology and use of Nazi symbolism, and which is believed to have participated in training and radicalizing United States-based white supremacy organizations. If a group is part of the regular law enforcement force and a top official praises its members as national heroes, it seems like convincing evidence of government support. In 2014, President Petro Poroshenko even presented Azov's leader, Andra Bylitsky, with the Order for Courage. At the time, Violet Sky was also the head of the Social National Assembly, an organization committed to punishing severely sexual perversions and any interracial contacts that lead to the extinction of the white man. The BBC called the notion a typical neo-Nazi narrative, in a July report. And the list goes on and on. McFall's argument that a government headed by a Jewish person cannot possibly support neo-Nazis doesn't seem to hold water. In May 2017, Ukrainian Prime Minister Volodymyr Groisman personally traveled to Israel to secure the purchase of weapons for Azov Battalion, which has since published videos of its members training with Israeli assault rifles. As Haaretz reported at the time, Israel is exporting weapons to Ukraine, knowing that they reach right-wing militias, some members of which are avowed neo-Nazis who enjoy the support of the authorities. It seems like somebody is living in denial. Now you see what a confusing mess this is. There's a lot of good racial people in there, but... They're all into working for someone who doesn't have their best interest. And here they're t getting weapons out of Israel. And we got the, <laughs> the president's a Jew. <laughs> Stay out of this kind of stuff. Stay out of it. Our friend Jan in South Africa is promoting something I'm sure he's not quite familiar with, and that is a white dating service. We've gone through this several times over the years and it always turned out badly so I put this out as a comment beware these dating groups experiments have been tried for decades intermittently 
They have been used by the FBI and others to gain information and neutralize good people. The only way to find a good woman is the old-fashioned way. Get off your ass and go find her. Here's an interesting comment. The daughter of a former Q Klux Klan Grand Dragon explained how her family's economic hardship led her father's violent white nationalism. In an interview with Pacific Standard, Yvonne Hubbard said her father, Joel, losing his job absolutely impacted his decision to start hosting KKK meetings in their childhood home in the mountains of western North Carolina. Economic hardship directly contributed to the hate and anger in my childhood home, she said. In my case, my father was also an alcoholic, another problem that disproportionately affects poor communities. Her father's alcoholism, Hubbard said, was both a problem itself and a catalyst for further troubles that made him driven to commit violence and spew hatred. Hubbard, whose book White Sheets to Brown Babies documents her life and escape from her father's tenure in, in the KKK, noted that although her father ostensibly disavowed the group after being shot multiple times in a domestic dispute, the racism hung on. The same racism cropped back up when calls for the Confederate flag to re be removed from the government grounds after white supremacist Dylan Roof killed nine people at the Mother Emanuel AME Zionist Church in Charleston, South Carolina. That's the way it goes. Oppression builds resistance. I've kept, I keep telling you that. Oppression breeds resistance. So is oppression good? Or bad? Well, it all depends on the way you look at it. 276 people were shot and killed by police in 2018, according to the Washington Post. Oh, yeah, they ought to know. Database that tracks fatalities and encounters with law enforcement. Backed by powerful unions and the standard that they can shoot to kill if they perceive a threat, cops almost never face consequences for shooting and killing civilians. In a long feature article, ProPublica chronicle the story of a police officer who was fired after an encounter with a distraught black man. I wonder if they're... The cop was discharged for failing to shoot him. Another officer who arrived on the scene shot the man dead. They never talk much about white people in the same situation, do they? Do you see that? It's never racial till it comes up being a black man. And then it's racial all over the place. This society is infected with negrophilia. Negrophilia. Well, boys and girls, that's about it for today. Wotan's Day, yeah. We'll be back tomorrow on Thor's Day. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.